Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hey, don't forget that this Thursday, September 17th, is the annual Give for Good event going on in Louisville. Please donate that day to the Fellowship of Reconciliation site at the giveforgoodlouisville.org website. We don't have any corporate sponsors here, so without your contribution, Louisville will not have any radio stations at all broadcasting amazing national shows like Democracy Now!, The Tom Hartman Show, Black Agenda Radio, Rising Up with Sonali, Harry Shearer, Arnie Arneson, or Richard Wolff. Thanks a lot for doing that. Well, we've got an interesting story for you this week. It's a rebroadcast of our December 10th, 2018 show about gender dysphoria. Have a listen and I'll update you about what has happened since the publication of this article. Here's a personal question for you. Have you ever been caught in a lie? It's not very fun, is it? Have you ever been publicly criticized on the job for the quality of your work? That's very embarrassing. Well, if you've ever had either one of these experiences, you know a little bit of what it's like for a scientist to have to retract one of their research papers. Oh, it's never happened to me, but I imagine that for a scientist to be accused of either dishonesty or incompetence, that must really be a horrible experience. I think my first response would be to crawl under a rock somewhere or hide out in my bedroom in the fetal position for a couple of weeks. And then I would probably quit my job in humiliation and spend the rest of my days doing charity work somewhere on the top of a mountain in the Himalayas. I think that's what I would do. For scientists, the ultimate method we have for communicating our data, our results, is through publication of research papers. And those papers need to be published in peer-reviewed journals, which means that a small number of scientists, it's usually three, have actually read the manuscript that you've submitted to the journal, and those three reviewers have decided that your manuscript is of high enough quality to be published in that journal. These reviewers are anonymous, which means that they can usually be pretty brutal in their critiques of your manuscript. So that means that by the time the manuscript gets published in a journal, it's going to be a really good paper. The hope is that only high-quality, reliable research actually gets published in the literature. This is important because a poorly constructed experiment or dishonest data can lead other scientists to conclusions that do not have a basis in reality. Other scientists might waste a lot of time and money conducting experiments based on unfounded ideas, and that's a big waste. And not only does that waste the time and money of other scientists, but then the public reads these papers, and government officials make decisions about these papers that affect the world. And a couple examples of this are these papers that have come out about the safety of vaccines, or papers that have come out about the safety of genetically modified organisms. If the paper isn't accurate, it leads the public to the wrong conclusions. 
And once you have an article that's got mistakes in it that gets published in a journal somewhere, it's really difficult to take it back. By the time people realize that there are mistakes in a research article, the journal's already published it, it's already been printed, it's been distributed to scientists and libraries around the world, it's been mailed out, it's already in the library stacks at the university. So it's going to be a lot harder to take this thing back. Of course, a lot of journals publish online nowadays, and you might think, well, that would be easier to take back, but by the time it gets released to the web, it's available online, people have already downloaded it, they've already printed it, maybe they've cited it in their own research manuscript. So whether it's a paper that's printed on paper or whether it's an online publication, it's hard to get that bad boy back in the bottle once it's been published. And once that erroneous paper has been published and it's been publicized and people have read it, the idea, the concept of the paper, even if later it's retracted, it's still there in our minds. And one of the most famous examples of that is this paper that came out about a link between autism and childhood vaccines. I'm sure that paper still crosses every parent's minds when they're thinking about giving vaccines to their children, even though the paper's been shown to have problems. Now, when a published scientific paper is suspected of containing serious errors, or it's plagiarized, or it's dishonest, the editors of that journal can retract it, which means that they publish a public repudiation of that article. And the publisher can also remove the paper from their website if it happens to be published online. Now, sometimes a retraction is initiated by the editors of the journal itself once they become aware of a problem. But a retraction can also be initiated by the authors of the paper itself or by the institution or the university where those scientists were working. Now, you might wonder, why would authors retract their own research papers? Well, most research papers these days have more than one author. There might be two, three, four, ten different co-authors of a paper. And if one co-author cheats or does a sloppy job and the other co-authors catch wind of it, they can be the ones to initiate the retraction. Since they're co-authors of that paper, they're partially responsible for it and they may be worried about their own reputation. They may want to pursue granting opportunities in the future and they may not want to be associated with this false research. Now, a retraction is very different than just a simple correction. You might have a simple correction if the authors made an honest mistake in how they maybe they listed their data, maybe they put the wrong number in a table somewhere, or maybe they worded a specific statement in an imprecise way. That's just a correction. It doesn't alter the major conclusions of the research, though. A retraction is often a sign of unethical behavior on the part of one of the co-authors of the research. It might be that one co-author of the paper fooled the other co-authors, or it could be a problem with the lab technician who did part of the experiment, and they're not even listed as a co-author. But a paper can also be retracted if the authors made an honest mistake. They made an honest error in the way they carried out the experiment, or maybe they interpreted the data in a way that really wasn't justified. That can result in a retraction also. I don't have any up-to-date statistics about the number of scientific retractions, but I can tell you that back in 2001, there were 40 retractions, and that by 2010, there was up to 400 retractions. So that's from 40 to 400 in just 10 years. 
That's a tenfold increase in scientific retractions over a decade. By 2005, there were 500 retractions. So it looks like there has been a rise in the number of retractions in the last 15 years or so, from about 40 per year to maybe 500 a year. But keep in mind that there's also been a large increase in the number of research articles that actually get published every year. And I don't have statistics right now about the changes in the rates of retractions. How many retractions per thousand articles are there actually every year? I just don't have that data. I'm not sure anyone does. I can tell you about one survey of psychologists done back in 2011, which found that 1% of these psychologists admitted to falsifying data. Other studies have estimated the rate of scientific fraud to be about 2%. So maybe it's 1%, 2%. That's one out of every 100 papers, one out of every 50 papers. That's way too much in my mind. Well, now that that rather lengthy introduction to the issue of retractions is over, I want to tell you about a specific case. It's not exactly a retraction yet because the editors of the journal haven't exactly decided what to do about the article in question. The article in question that could be retracted in the future has to do with gender dysphoria in adolescence. So put yourself in this situation. A 14-year-old, maybe it's a daughter or a niece or a cousin, a friend, what have you, comes up to you and says that although they were born in a girl's body, they actually feel like they're a boy. They just feel more comfortable as a boy than a girl. Now, how do you respond to that? Do you think it's due to social pressure or peer pressure, you know, a change in cultural norms? Or do you take it seriously, like maybe this person really is trapped in a body of the wrong sex? Well, I'll describe this situation to you in a moment, right after this short station break. You are listening to Bench Talk, the Weekend Science. So this article that might be retracted in the future has a title of Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria in Adolescents and Young Adults, a Study of Parental Reports. And it was published in the journal PLOS1. It's an online open access journal in the August 16, 2018 issue. So this article is about gender dysphoria, which used to be called gender identity disorder. And it happens when a person is experiencing a great deal of distress anxiety, depression, because the gender that the person feels like they belong to doesn't match their physical body. And this article is about children and adolescents with gender dysphoria. Now, experts do have certain signs or symptoms they look for when diagnosing a child with gender dysphoria. For instance, does the child consistently say that they're female even though they have the physical traits of a male? Or do they insist that they're male even though they have the physical traits of a female? Do they strongly prefer friends of the gender with which they identify? Do they reject the clothes, the behaviors, the other social norms for their physically apparent gender? Do they refuse to urinate sitting or standing up that's typical for their physical gender? Do they say that they want to get rid of the genitals that they were born with and to have the genitals of the gender they think they belong in? Do they believe that even though they have the physical traits of one gender, that when they grow up, they will be the opposite gender? 
do they have extreme distress about the body changes that occur during puberty? Those are some of the major signs of a child having gender dysphoria. Now this particular paper we're discussing today is by Dr. Lisa Littman. She's a physician and a researcher of behavioral and social sciences housed in the Brown University School of Public Health in Providence, Rhode Island. She's the only author of this particular paper. And what's controversial about her paper is her focus on the role of peer pressure and gender dysphoria in young children and adolescents. The author of this paper, Dr. Littman, claims that gender dysphoria often shows up in children who have friends and peers who also have gender dysphoria, that this is contagious. The author draws an analogy to eating disorders like anorexia. Groups of friends can set the norms for preoccupation with one's body, body image, techniques for weight loss, things like that. She also thinks attention to the transgender phenomenon in social media and the internet might also be encouraging young people to question their gender identity. This researcher is saying that the publicity about gender identity acts as sort of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's good because media attention to transgender issues might be helping people who have those feelings so that they could be better diagnosed or treated. But on the other hand, it might be According to the researcher, it might be encouraging people who have non-specific or vague feelings about their gender to immediately diagnose themselves with gender dysphoria. Needless to say, this is a very controversial paper. It is in sort of a retraction watch situation right now. It's been published for a few months, but it is possible that the journal or the author or the institution the author belongs to might be retracting this article in the future because it is raising a lot of controversy. So I'm not saying the conclusions made by this research are correct or appropriate. I just wanted you to know about the situation. So this paper is receiving a lot of criticism from transgender advocates because they think it's anti-transgender because it's basically suggesting that gender dysphoria is socially contagious. There are criticisms about the methods used in this paper. Basically what Dr. Littman did was interview parents of children and adolescents who appeared to be experiencing gender dysphoria. She didn't actually interview the children at all. And the way she recruited the parents is sort of controversial because she recruited them from websites that are frequented by parents who were concerned about their children's sudden gender transition. So it doesn't appear like these parents were pulled from a randomized pool of parents, but rather they're a little bit self-selected. Once these parents were recruited, they were asked to complete a series of 90 multiple-choice questions in an online survey about their children. Many of the questions centered around the children's mental and emotional conditions both before and after their diagnosis of gender dysphoria. And the paper includes a lot of anecdotes about individual cases. A lot of anecdotes. I've got to tell you, this was a really long article. It seemed to take forever for me to get through it. And it's because it contained all these anecdotes about individual adolescents. And most of these stories are about children who did not appear to have transgender tendencies until they were adolescents or young adults, at which point they developed gender dysphoria really quickly. 
The paper reported that many of these adolescents had been diagnosed with at least one mental health disorder, and many had experienced a traumatic or stressful event at some point in their lives. And the author concludes that that might be playing some sort of a role. A higher than average number of the adolescents were academically gifted and had parents that were highly educated. Another controversial aspect of this paper is the incidence of what she calls cluster outbreaks of gender dysphoria. That there'll be a group of adolescents who live in the same vicinity, maybe they attend the same school for instance, and suddenly a bunch of them declare themselves as transgender. The author describes this as rapid onset gender dysphoria. The author of this paper offers a couple of hypotheses for explaining this rapid onset gender dysphoria. These hypotheses are what's really getting a lot of criticism. Her first idea is that the adolescents who claim to be transgender were being influenced by their peers and by social media. This is the idea that transgender identification is contagious, almost like an infectious disease. Her other hypothesis is that these transgender children were likely to have experienced some sort of emotional challenge beforehand, like a traumatic event, and that's what's led them to declare themselves as transgender. There's a lot of tables in this paper that I don't feel like wading through for you, but I'll read some of the scenarios that they observed from these interviews with the parents. Well, here's one. I'll read straight from the paper. A 12-year-old female at birth was bullied specifically for going through early puberty, and the responding parent wrote, quote, As a result, she said she felt fat and hated her breasts, unquote. She learned online that hating your breasts is a sign of being transgender. She edited her diary by crossing out existing text and writing in new text to make it appear that she had always felt that she was transgender. And the second scenario is about a 14-year-old female at birth, and three of her natal female friends were taking group lessons together with a very popular coach. The coach came out as transgender, and within a year, all four students announced that they were also transgender. I'm still quoting different scenarios from this paper. A third one is, a female at birth was traumatized by a rape when she was 16 years of age. Before the rape, she was described as a happy girl. After the rape, she became withdrawn and fearful. Several months after the rape, she announced that she was transgender and told her parents that she needed to transition. And there are several more scenarios like that. So there are numerous complaints about this paper, which is why I found it on retractionwatch.com. There are complaints about how the research was conducted. For instance, the parents that were questioned during the study were recruited from allegedly biased websites and that they only interviewed the parents of the children and not the children themselves and that there was not an experimental control group, that is, the parents of adolescents who have not declared themselves as transgender. I doubt that that experimental control group experienced any lower social pressure or experienced a fewer number of traumatic experiences. I did find some commentary about this research article in The Advocate, which is a long-respected LGBT publication. Quote, the narrative states that teens, particularly those assigned female at birth, 
are going on the internet and convincing themselves that they are transgender because being transgender is trendy. It treats transgender identities as a form of social contagion. This theory has been picked up on by numerous hate groups and conservative news outlets. Unquote. This research was done at Brown University, which, by the way, is an Ivy League university, and the university has recently withdrawn the press release that was originally issued to advertise Dr. Littman's article. They now state, quote, The School of Public Health has heard from Brown community members expressing concerns that the conclusions of the study could be used to discredit efforts to support transgender youth and invalidate the perspectives of members of the transgender community, unquote. The journal that published the original paper, the journal's called PLOS1, it's also taking criticisms for publishing this article, and they say that they are looking into the situation, but now, about three months after the article's come out, early December 2018, I haven't heard any sort of a retraction taking place. So there are some concrete actions against the thesis of this paper, but there's actions on the other side as well. There's a petition drive with some 1,400 signatures by people who support the author's original paper. Some of this support is undoubtedly from people who agree with the conclusions of the author, but I think some of that support is also about academic freedom. One supporter of Dr. Littman is quoted as saying, quote, What researcher would want to work at Brown University when the value of your work is determined by political pressure? Is Brown a research institution or a marketing company that accidentally rolled out new coke? The research of supposedly unpopular ideas should be our goal in academia, not a source of shame. This is very worrisome indeed, unquote. Well, I decided to read this article myself and make my own decision about the quality, the reliability, the repeatability of this research. I have to admit I'm a biologist, not a social scientist like a psychologist, but I've peer-reviewed numerous high-quality journal articles in the past. I think I'm somewhat of a decent judge of quality research. The first thing I've got to say about this article, way too long. It's 41 pages long. Give me a break. When I publish, I try to be as economical and concise in my writing as I can possibly be, but this paper, it just goes on forever. Secondly, it seems like most of the data in this paper is based on the observation and the opinions of the parents about their transgender children and adolescents rather than a clinical analysis of what the children themselves have actually gone through. I guess if it was a court of law, the opposing side would say, that's hearsay. Of course, I'm not a lawyer either, but I think hearsay is when someone makes a statement about a crime or a situation when they're not actually a witness to that crime. So that would be like me saying, Jane Doe told me that she saw the defendant kill the victim. Well, that's hearsay because we need to be hearing from Jane Doe herself rather than from somebody else who talked to Jane Doe. So in this case, that would be the children and adolescents who are declaring themselves transgender. It would be nice to hear from them about this transition that they're experiencing. Thirdly, it seems like interviews with parents and children by trained psychologists would be helpful in this research. Instead of just examining the results of online questionnaires, 
which is all the parents actually filled out, something face-to-face by a professional seems more appropriate. Fourth, this article is saying that children might be declaring themselves as transgender because of factors like trauma in their lives, peer persuasion, and the messages received on social media, and that this rapid onset gender dysphoria is spreading like a contagion. I'm certainly no expert on the subject, but the few transgender people that I have interacted with have given me a different perspective than what is illustrated in this paper. It seems to me that rather than declaring yourself as transgender as something that's going to endear you to your friends and neighbors and parents and somehow help you overcome the various life traumas that you've experienced, seems to me like declaring yourself as transgender seems like it would add hardships to your life rather than relieve them, at least in the world we live in today. Just think about the discrimination that transgender people must experience in school on the job, at church, within their own family. But when I searched through this manuscript for the word discrimination, I found nothing. The paper doesn't consider that. It just seems like prejudice against transgender folks is pretty high, and there is no mention of that as a counteracting force to social media. Well, just think about all the acts of violence that are committed against transgender people every year. But was violence mentioned in this paper, all 41 pages? Only once was violence brought up, and that was a discussion about the threats of violence by children, by adolescents, against their parents. And so it was violence against the parents that was discussed in this paper, not the other way around. I don't really know how much social pressure there actually is there that's inspiring people to become transgender, like inspiring these children but there sure seems to be a lot of social pressure to not declare yourself as transgender. Discrimination, bullying, humiliation, isolation, economic deprivation, violence. Seems to me like there are so many reasons for a person to not publicly declare a gender that's not the one they were born with, that if they do that, if they declare that anyway, it must be for a really good reason. And not just because your friends or your coach is doing it, or because of something you read on Facebook. But this article doesn't seem to discuss that side of the story. In my mind, this research paper is focusing more on the social and personal forces that are encouraging children and adolescents to declare themselves as transgender without really reflecting on the strong societal forces discouraging that very transition. So here we are, early December 2018. There doesn't seem to be any kind of a retraction of this paper by Dr. Littman. There's no new statements from Brown University where Dr. Littman is working, except that they did withdraw that original press release about the article. And then the journal that published this article, PLOS1, doesn't seem to have done anything since their a statement of August 27, 2018, where they say they're going to seek further expert assessment on the study's methodology and analysis, and that they'll provide an update once that assessment and discussion has been completed. That statement was issued just 11 days after the article was published, which was three months ago now, so time will tell. Now, in the meantime, if you would like to examine this article yourself, it is freely available on PLOS 1. I think if you just did an internet search for Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria, that's the name of this new disease that Dr. Littman recognizes. 
If you do a search for rapid onset gender dysphoria and then add the word P-L-O-S-1-O-N-E, I think you'll find it. We'll post this article on Facebook too, like we do every week. What's interesting about all PLOS articles is that they do have an area at the bottom of the page for reader comments. So far, there's 14 comments on this article. Maybe you will want to contribute your opinion that way. Thank you. Hey, we're back in September 2020 time again. And I wanted to tell you that this article that was originally published in August 2018, two years ago, It's been modified since its publication. A critique of the study's methodology was published in a different journal in 2019. It was in the spring. And after a review by the original journal, PLOS, a corrected version of the paper was released in March of 2019. So go online if you want to check it out. And be sure to donate this Thursday, September 17th, to the Give for Good link at the top of the forwardradio.org webpage. This station needs your contribution if we're going to keep it going. Thank you, and see you next week.